This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week one of a series that's being called Awaken, Live Like It Matters. Um, and this is part of a, of a three-week series that all of the Church United churches here in South Florida, and specifically the ones in Broward County, have come together at this time of year to preach the same passages with the same basic topics, just so that the whole church is, is focused on these thoughts at this time. It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not any kind of canned material. Each pastor is doing their own messages, but it's, it's been planned out and agreed upon in advance uh, what passages will be preached on each week and what the general idea is. Um, this isn't the first year. I think this is the is this the second or the third year that this has happened, Sam? Do you remember? I want to say it's second, but I'm not 100 percent confident of my answer. I, I would say second also. I remember I remember them doing it last year and it worked really well, and so they decided to do it again this year. And it it uh, it kind of serves as a break between your summer series and and Advent, which is coming up next. My understanding or memory of history really is in the COVID vortex. Like I was sitting here remembering like. <laughs> Did, did it happen during COVID? Did we do it? Was there another year? Where are we? What year is it? Like, I, I'm constantly finding myself doing that when people are asking me, how long ago did such and such happen? I'm like, uh, COVID? Yeah. I don't know. And and it's true. And I do find myself thinking at times, how long has COVID lasted? You know, it's like, I don't remember. When, when did, was that like a, were we, you know, around this, around our house, this question is, were we in the bunker or out of the bunker at that time? I don't remember. So it's it's crazy. It is crazy. It's a it's a really a, you know a very much of an unparalleled uh, time. All right. So so while we were talking about this, yeah. I, I did a search in my email, and this is the third. Okay. So we we had we had unsinkable okay. in 2019, undivided last year, and then this year is, is going awakened. to be awakening. Okay. Good. Well, I think it's just awaken. I did. I had trouble with this. It it's, is. It's just awaken. It's not awakening. So, I'm just trying to confuse people. Hopefully, when we preach, when we talk about awaken, it will produce an awakening. But, uh, but the, so at any rate, the the first week here in this series brings us to a very familiar story. Um, it is the story of the woman at the well in John chapter four. Um, although oddly enough, and we decided to go ahead and do it this way to approach it this way. Uh, I was going to say oddly enough, it's not the whole story, but rather it sort of picks up midstream. Um, the the passage that was selected for uh, to be preached in the churches this coming Sunday is uh, found in John chapter four verses nineteen through twenty nine, and it's really this kind of s- this you know slice in the story toward the end of the story, but it's after Jesus has already uh, encountered the woman, so mm-hmm. um, and she's about to tell him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet." So obviously something has <laughs> happened that has caused her to perceive that he is a prophet. So let's give people a little bit of context here. So Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and what what happens to set this encounter up? So, so the whole we we talked about this, by the way, in a, in a different episode going back on um, on how Jesus sees race, 
And so what's going on here is Jesus is on his way from Judea to go up to Galilee. And normally you would go outside of the Jordan River to avoid the the area of Samaria altogether because the Samarians were seen as half-breeds. They were interbred with the Assyrians when they conquered that land. And so they were seen as, you know, racially inferior. And they hated each other. They had theological divisions with one another. And so there was a lot of animosity. And so, like, you'll notice that when Jesus's fame is beginning to grow and John the Baptist is, is pointing people to Jesus, there's that line in verse 4 that says he needed to go through Samaria. And so there's something in Jesus as his fame is growing. It's like he had to go visit this woman in the middle of Samaria. And so rather than going around Samaria, he goes through Samaria and he goes to Mount Gerizim, which in the Old Testament is the Mount of Blessings for Moses. For the Samaritans, it's a it's a very, very holy mountain. It's where they built their own temple, and they said, you know, the, the temple in Jerusalem was no good. It's our temple, and Mount Gerizim is the one that matters. And so Jesus is at the foot of Mount Gerizim when he goes up and starts this conversation that's just the two of them with this woman who comes to the well at midday, which just to give background, like you already know she's ashamed. She comes at midday because no one else in the city is coming at midday to get water. It was too hot. And so obviously this is a woman who's there for a reason. She doesn't want to be seen by anybody. And Jesus walks up and says, give me a drink. And it starts this long question. She's like, how can you? You're a Jew. How, can, how are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink because of all the racial tensions? And so Jesus starts into this conversation with her saying like, if, man, if you, if you knew basically the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you asking for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so then they go down this road like you've talked about um, where before we started recording where – she is, starts bringing up all these distraction questions, mm-hmm. you know. Well, the question is actually in our passage. It's like she said, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So Jesus Jesus comes to her and, and offers her this water, essentially, saying if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask him, and he, he would give you this living water that would satisfy you. And she's like, well, of course I want that water. And then he does something that's that's jarring. He says, you know, go call your husband and have him come here, which seems like a change of subject. But she then says, well, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And it sounds really harsh, but remember that we haven't changed the subject. Jesus is talking with her, and he's saying, you need something that genuinely satisfies your heart, and you've never found it. And then he says, go call your husband, because that's her issue. She's trying to find her significance in the arms of a man, and she's been through five husbands that have probably abandoned her or divorced her and left her feeling unwanted, scandalized in her city. And so when he's talking with her about what satisfies your heart, what he's doing is he's calling her out of this cycle of of abuse that she's been in, and she needs to find her worth and her value in him rather than chasing these men. And so when when he puts his finger on that thing – 
And he says, I know you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. That's when our our passage that we're going to talk about today starts in verse 19. So before we uh, get into our passage this week, I just wanted to, to say if, if you're interested in the uh, the podcast episodes that we did earlier that were in this concerning this same passage and and the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you're interested in the history of it, uh, it episode fifty seven and episode fifty eight, which were on the subject of racial reconciliation, and talked about how Jesus uh, dealt with the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. In his day, and so I would recommend that uh, if you really would like to have a much fuller context and background about the conflict between these two people, these two people groups, um, that those episodes would be worth listening to. So that's episode fifty-seven and fifty-eight. But uh, this week um, we're just going to deal with the, the, the latter half of it here. So we're going to begin in verse nineteen, which is right after uh, Jesus had demonstrated this supernatural knowledge to the woman when she when he said go call your husband and she said i don't have a husband and he said you've answered well because you've had five husbands and the person you're with right now isn't your husband that kind of supernatural knowledge obviously would have been disconcerting to her you know i i tried to imagine that as i was looking at this passage i tried to imagine what that would be like to like just have a conversation with somebody seemingly at random this guy she doesn't you know this is just a guy at the well right uh, first of all, she had to be startled because she was coming to the well at midday specifically to not run into somebody. And yet here's this guy. <laughs> He's just like chilling next to the well, you know, by himself. And he then he strikes up a conversation, which is super unusual for two reasons. First is men just didn't talk to random women back in those days. That It would be beneath a, a Jewish man to talk to a woman about Making small, you just make small talk, men to women, just didn't happen. And then a Jew to a Samaritan. So it was like very, the whole thing must have been very like, she'd be looking around going, where's the camera? Who's got their iPhone out? Who's filming me? You know, Uh, that kind of thing. And one of the things about Samaritans, this is true to this day, the Samaritans were even more legalistic than the Jewish religious leaders were. Um, so the Samaritans, they estimate that in Jesus' day there was somewhere around a million Samaritans. Today there's less than a thousand. But even still to this day, they still practice all of the law. And the word Samaritan comes from a root that is like defender or protector of the Torah. Mm. And so they they follow laws really, really closely. Like even to this day, a woman is not allowed to live in the same house with men while she's menstruating. Like they they are extremely strict, which is probably why there's less than a thousand of them still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it's they're very strict. And so the idea of, of Jesus coming and talking to a woman would have not just been scandalous in Jewish culture, but particularly scandalous in Samaritan culture. So both of them, it's shocking. Yeah. Well, and you know, and it makes them great fun at parties too. I hear, <laughs> probably not. Um, so, so when she has this encounter where Jesus demonstrates that he knows things, as as my wife, the lawyer, would say, "Your Honor, facts not in evidence." Um, you know, Jesus doesn't. Jesus knew stuff about her that he couldn't have known had God not revealed it to him. Uh, and so she says in verse nineteen, says the woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet," and. And I want to stop for there just one second because 
I want people to think about what that would be like. Um, if, if you were somebody who's, especially like you're saying, Samaritans were absolutely consumed with this idea of law keeping and, and following the letter of the, of the law of the Old Testament law. Um, these were, these were religious people. You know, mm-hmm. their religion was a big part of who they were. That was that was their identity. You know, they identified as the Samaritan religion. Um, and to have a prophet in front of you would have to feel like you had just, in some sense, you had just won the lottery. Because this is my opportunity to ask a question. And I'm not just throwing it out there, you know, in a, yeah, at the temple or on top of the mountain, talking to the air, talking to the sky, God, will you hear me? But rather, I'm talking to God's prophet, so I know God is going to hear me because I'm talking to his prophet. And I know that when the prophet answers my question, I'm going to be getting an answer directly from God. You know, I thought about that because, yeah, you know, we, we, I mean, we obviously, we as as modern day Christians would say, well, I talk to God all the time. I pray. I talk to God. That's true. And God, you know, God talks to us. Well, how does God talk to you? Well, through his word. And that's true. God speaks to us through his word, through his spirit. His spirit communicates with our spirit. But yes, and these things, though, are like we have to we have to go search his word to find the answer. And the, the whole his spirit talks to my spirit kind of thing. The first thing you got to overcome is that I'm always thinking, is it God's spirit talking to my spirit? Or did I eat a taco too late at night last night? <laughs> what is it that's causing this discomfort in me? It might be hot sauce or it might be God. I don't know. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is to have a in-the-flesh prophet in front of me where I could ask God a question and moments later – the answer to that question would come out of this man's mouth, and I would know that it was from God. I started thinking about what question would I ask. And that that occupied my little brain for some time. <laughs> and I encourage you guys that are listening to the podcast to just think about that for just a second. If you had someone in front of you that you became convinced could get you, you know, it's like, I'm, <clears throat> yes, Mr. Cassis Smith, I'm, I'm here from the Lord God, and I'm here to answer any question that you might have. First, let me demonstrate that I've got God on the line. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell you the six secret sins you've done over the last week that you're not telling anybody about. I've got them written down here. Let me run through them for you. And he runs through them, and you're sitting here thinking, oh, nope. crap, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and then you're thinking, no, 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 don't, don't feel bad. No, no. I'm just here to offer you the answer to one question. What's the question? I, you know, I found myself thinking for quite some time about that. Uh, and I'll tell people what my answer was. I, t- I shared it this morning at, at our staff uh, personal worship time. I said, the question that I would most want to ask God if I knew I could get a direct answer is, God, what is wrong with me sometimes? What's 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 wrong with me? It's like... I, these things that I believe, and I and I believe that I believe them. You know, it's like I I I don't believe that this is like a, you know, it's not some kind of made up thing. But these things that I believe about faith and God and the world and how life works and what my mission is here, if I believed them at the level that they exist, like if I believed, if I truly believe they are as important as I would tell you intellectually they are, 
I should, my zeal should be never ending. There should not be a, I should be consumed every day with this thing of we've got to get the message of the gospel out. We've got to get, I shouldn't be able to sleep at night because I would be worried that I hadn't taken every opportunity. And yet I don't, Hmm. I don't. And so my question would be, God, what's wrong with me? Why, you know, why am I not wired right in the head? I should be, I should be more on fire about this stuff. I was surprised that it, I didn't have like a question at the ready. Like there, there wasn't something where I was like, hey, you know what? I've always wondered this. Like there, I had to stop and think about it. And I, I had two questions that, that both came up. The first one was, am I, am I doing the right thing? with my life like if i'm going to make the biggest splash for the kingdom like is there something i should be doing that i'm not doing which immediately made me imagine god asking a question back to me <laughs> <laughs> which was you know sam i appreciate your fervor and all that you want to do something big but why don't you just be faithful with the small things Let, like let's get there first yeah <laughs> yeah know? yeah um because, you know, like I think about, you know, the number of people that I invite to Alpha, which isn't what it should be, or the amount of time that I spend praying for revival, which isn't what it should be. And so it's like, you know, we want to do big things, but reality is like the Lord quickly got me off that question. <laughs> <laughs> but then the, then the other question that I came to, and, and it, it kind of rattled around in my mind a little bit, is, you know, every once in a while you'll come across just a nature of God that you realize doesn't jive with what you would want it to be selfishly. Uh-huh. Some position that he has where you're like, okay, God's different than, than what I would want him to be sure. or if I was inventing him, how I would make him. And that question then became, I wonder what is in my mind when, I, you know, when I'm in this relationship with Christ and as I get to know him, I get to see him more clearly who he is. I wonder where I'm still off. Like, what about him when I finally get to meet him face-to-face and see him as he is and get to know him as he is, you know, fully? Like, what am I going to be surprised by? I'd Mm -hmm. love to know that now. Mm -hmm. I mean, apart from him being infinite, I know I can't wrap my mind around infinity, but is there anything where I'm going to be like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I didn't know (laughs) that you were like this. You know, if there's any blind spots, that would be my question. I, th- I thought it was uh, it was interesting to listen to some of the things that people were were asking. Um, I mean, kind of classic ones like "Why is there suffering?" That was one that that got mentioned. Um, Pastor Tom had a list of things that people had mentioned at Alpha that he had he had been taking notes uh, at their table at Alpha of of questions that people had, especially uh, early on in this in this Alpha class. And um, and some of them were along that same lines, you know. Why do you, why is there death? Why do we have to die? Why, you know, these are those kinds of questions. And mm-hmm. um, and so he shared those, and I thought that was good. And then at some point, he, you know, he was saying, you know, I'm still thinking about my question. And at some point, he he put in the chat of the Zoom call this morning what his question was, and I thought it was a good one. His question would have been, what is standing between us and revival? Mm-hmm. Where what's the impediment? You know, um, and I thought that was a good question, a very you know a very pastoral question. But I I did I do think that there's a lot of people that would ask a question. There's a whole lot of of why questions. You know, why would why did my my 
child die or my wife or husband die or why did my business fail? There's a whole lot of why questions, especially associated with negative events because we, you know, we, we're all desperate, I think, to find a sense of meaning and purpose, even in the, even in the, especially maybe in the bad moments. I would say even in the bad moments, but I think maybe especially in the bad moments of life. Um, because that is something that, you know, if, if I were to come to you and say, Sam, <clears throat> put your hand on the table, I'd like to start hitting it with this hammer. You'd probably say, Mark, I would rather not do that. But if I said, Sam, here's the deal. This guy over here gave me this billion dollars of cash and I can hand it to you and it can be yours. I'll keep a finder's fee, but you can have most of it. But here's the deal. You got to put your hand on the table and let me smash it with this hammer. You'd probably, for a billion dollars, you'd probably put your hand on the table. You'd think, and I can buy a lot of reconstructive surgery for a billion dollars. So, you know, I'm just saying, if you know what the purpose of the suffering is, uh, that's a stupid example, but if you know what the purpose of the suffering is, it somehow feels easier to get through it, you know, just mm-hmm. to be able to bear up under it. Um, so there were a lot of those questions, too. Um, interestingly enough, not one of them was the type of question the Samaritan woman asked Jesus. Not one of them. Uh, the, it's every kind of question that you might imagine, but instead what she did was, I believe, she asked the question that was designed to be a smokescreen. Mm-hmm. Um, in verse 20, here's her question. And it's not even really a question. It's a statement. She's asking Jesus, agree or disagree? She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so she's dragging him into a debate, a conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews believe that they should worship on Mount, is Mount was it Mount Ebal? Is that the name of it, where Jerusalem Gerizim. was? Gerizim is the oh, Samaritans. Oh, no, and that's, um, oh, good grief, Mount Moriah. Moriah. Um, so Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah, where uh, Jerusalem is. And then Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans believe. So they were having this dispute about where you worship God. And honestly, that really was just who's God's favorite. It's like mm-hmm. it, they, she was asking Jesus to take sides. Are you going mm-hmm. to go with the Jews? Or are you going to be with us? Remember, you're within sight of Mount Gerizim. Look at it. It's beautiful. It looks like a mountain where one ought to worship. How can you not want to worship there? <laughs> and I'm not saying that she might not have actually been interested in the answer to that question because she was a Samaritan and this was something that they thought about. It was part of her culture. But I think that what she was trying to do is change the subject. She's like, Jesus, you're you know, like, you, dude, you're a prophet. Um, stop looking into my life. <laughs> stop telling me what I've been, you know, it's a little personal here. Let me ask you this question. Look, a puppy. Let me bring up this theological <laughs> squirrel. Let me bring up a theological debate here and see if I can drag you into that. Would you agree with that idea or is that what you, all, oh, you also that's think that's totally what's going on, what's going on here. okay all right because he's he's digging in her saying hey i've got this living water that can satisfy your deepest longings and here let me expose between us that i know where your pain is coming from i know where your heartbreak i know where your you know emotional deficiencies are i can help you and she's like eh, let's look at the newspaper you know <laughs> <laughs> it's totally a change of subject, and we used to experience this. Wait, when I was in seminary, we were required to go out on evangelism explosion calls, and so whether it was you know talking to people in the streets or going and knocking on doors of people who had visited the church um, that I was a part of back then, and you would go in and you would have a conversation. They would welcome you in. You weren't you know just 
I'm here to give you this leaflet, and you know, it, it was invited, right? But when we would have a, a conversation, it was amazing to me that when you would get down to the nitty gritty of the gospel, how many people would say, "Well, what about this?" You know, and they would they would ignore all of the things that you could agree upon up to that moment. But when it came, you know, when it came time to admit that. You know that there's a frailty to humanity that that we're we can't save ourselves, and you would get down to that moment. Inevitably, they would bring up some question from the Bible, something that was, you know, not at the heart of what you were talking about, and it was always a smokescreen. And they taught you. I I, I hated this rule because I'm a talker and I love chasing <laughs> rabbits. But they would tell you, you know, we'll talk about that later. You know, right. And to, and to push it off because it was a smokescreen, and that's that's legitimately – I've experienced that a whole bunch of times where you're talking to somebody about Jesus and salvation and sin or even in counseling with people that are struggling with marriage and you get to the wound. You know, you get to the thing that's causing real pain to try to heal it and to address it head on and there's – people throw up this, well, what do you think about this? You know, and it's like – absolutely trying to dodge the question because it's too painful to go there. Well, Sam, do, do you think that it actually was an apple with Eve and Adam or was it some other kind of fruit? I exactly. mean, I'm, I've always wanted to know about this. You know, <laughs> The watermelon. It was a watermelon? Yeah, okay. It was something. It was a fig newton. I've always said it was a fig, you know, because they had fig leaves and whatever. And, but you know what? It doesn't say fig leaves either. It's like we, we read a whole lot into this sort of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're good at that. We're good at that. We read in a lot of details on things. Uh, but, you know, one of the other things about her asking this, that we we can't – all of their society, if you were a Samaritan, your religious life was divided away from the Jews because you worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Your political life was alienated from the Jews. Like everything about it, these two sides were so deeply entrenched against one another that you also see here that she's got some some insecurities. You know, like if Jesus showed up today and the same thing were to play out today between Republicans and Democrats, no one would ask this question right. because they're absolutely certain that God is on their side. Right. And every single time that you see God come down with entrenched sides, like you think back to Joshua when he's about to go to battle against Jericho and he demands of the Lord, I want you to tell me whose side you're on, and God says – no, I'm on neither side. Right. In this case, she's like, "Which mountain is it? I demand to know." And he's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do away with the mountains. Like, stop, stop going to your trenches." Um, and you see that again and again, and the way that God communicates, He, God is on His side, <laughs> you know, and it's about who is going to come on His side that that matters. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that she has the humility to say, you know what, I'm not sure that Gerizim is correct. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Jesus' answer here, I think, is, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot to this, uh, you know, theologically. Verses uh, 21 through 24 is Jesus' answer. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, I mean, it's obviously this is it's kind of a heavy answer. I mean, as mm-hmm. he as he answers back to her, it's like he he doesn't really let her change the subject. It's still about her and God, because that's what this whole conversation is about. It's about. But he does say here. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. When I read that, you know, I would paraphrase that as saying, as, as Jesus saying, oh, by the way, uh, we're right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. Which is true, right? So, Until I mean, he does, he does answer her question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the idea behind this, God, from, from the time that he appeared to Abraham, he said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to work through your genealogical line and – until the seed comes, the Messiah comes, and he is going to bless all the nations. And so what he's saying is, from the Jews is coming the salvation of the world, but the seed that was talked about going all the way back to Abraham is standing in front of her. He's the fulfillment of that, through which all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And then he turns, and he's using temple language, because remember, what she's saying is, you know, which mountain? It doesn't matter the mountain. She's talking about the temple on the mountain. Is it it this destroyed temple? Samaritan temple had been destroyed in the last century. Is it this temple that matters, or is it the temple in Jerusalem? And and God's like, oh, trust me, the hour's coming now where we're going to have a totally different temple. It's not going to be a temple with blocks. It's not going to be a temple on top of a mountain And he's looking at her, and it's like he's saying, you, Samaritan woman, you are going to be the temple. God is a spirit, and so you worship him with spirit, and God is seeking those who have to worship him in spirit and truth. And so he is transforming. As they're talking, Jesus is actually transforming this woman to become the temple of God. So he takes the com- the the debate is is it is it Gerizim or is it the Temple Mount? And he's like, no no no, it's you. Mind blowing. Like yeah. nobody would have had categories to understand that. But that's what Jesus is saying. All these dividing lines and nationalities and you know denominational squabbles or whatever, all that stuff. Like he's like, no no no, I'm coming to dwell in you. The mm-hmm. Spirit is coming to dwell in you because I'm going to make you. By the power of the cross, I am going to cleanse you to make you righteous, and now you come and you worship in spirit and truth. Yeah, um, I, I, that's so powerful what he's communicating here. One of the details that I noticed was that um, when he started off, when he began his answer, where he said, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father." He says, "The hour is coming. It's not mm-hmm. yet." Right now, you guys are all still worshiping in your your temples, but the time is coming when all that will pass away. Mm -hmm. But then in verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the... the The circumstance that he's talking about, which is, you know, you as an individual are going to be worshiping the Father where you know wherever you are you know i mean god is a spirit he's not located in one mountain or the other mountain or one temple or the other temple god is is in you and all around you god is a, god is everywhere so your worship shouldn't be confined confined to a a specific temple or on a specific lo- mountain or location or according to some specific ritual but rather you're going to be worshiping him in spirit and truth so mm-hmm. you know i think that we, we last 
week before last, we were talking about the now and the not yet. This is one of those now and not yet answers. Jesus says, Jesus gave her, a, although it's sort of a not yet and now. He gave her the not yet. It's like, okay, <laughs> this whole worrying about the temple thing, believe me, no one's going to worry about the temple when when all of them are pounded flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one's going to care about the temple. But he, then there's the now, which is God wants you to worship him in spirit and truth. He invites her to participate in something that's coming. So what, there's something that you notice in the Gospel of John. If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus has a, a, a thing that he says you know, repeatedly, which is, my hour has not yet come. So you'll see that in, in John 2 when the, with the, the – uh, turning of the water into wine when Mary says, you know, can you do this? And right. he says, my hour has not yet come. And then all throughout John, he's talking about his hour has not yet come, the hour is coming, and it's all future tense. And what the hour is, is it's always referring to the cross. Um, like when when Jesus in John 12, when he's talking about how he's about to go to the cross, it's save me from this hour, Mm-hmm. For this purpose I came to this hour. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And you'll see it. He's talking about the cross. And so when he says to the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming and now is. He's allowing her to participate in the fruit of the cross before he gets there. Mm. Uh, but that's what he's referring to. The hour is coming. Well, what happens at the cross she, you and I, all of us that come with all this shame, so she's got this legacy of broken relationships and divorces and shame, and she's separated from her community and all this mess, all of that at the cross, guess what? It, Jesus says, mine, and he takes all of her sin from her, all of her shame, and then he takes his absolute perfection and he clothes her with it. And so it's like that. he says the hour is coming, the cross is coming, the, the benefits of it are now here when true worshipers like you, Samaritan woman, are going to be transformed into the very temples of God, right. all purchased by the cross. So yeah. – and, and I – you know, this is my pet theory, but there's a couple of times in the Gospels where Jesus says, faith the size of a mustard seed can say to this mountain, pick yourself up and throw yourself into the sea. I think – that what that's talking about is all of the this mountain talk. Is it Gerizim? Is it Temple Mount? It's all these religious systems that come with all these rituals and, and legal codes, and it's all about salvation. And Jesus is saying, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that whole system, that whole mountain, get up and get the hell out of my way, <laughs> you know? Wow. like. That's what I think that means. You know, it's not literally, you're not going to sit there and go, okay, mountain, get up. You know, <laughs> he's talking about these religious systems that were so divisive that got people all caught up in which one is it? Is it this? Is it this? Is it the system? Is it the, you know, and he's saying, my death and my resurrection and ascension into heaven is going to take those systems. And do away with them. You no longer have access to God because you're good enough or because you follow the rules or you make the right sacrifice. No, no, no. All of that has been done for you, and that is what this whole exchange is about. It's it's glorious. It really Mm -hmm. is. So I feel like what she does next is an attempt to kind of – you know, she she feels – I'm reading into this again. I'm imagining myself in this conversation. She no doubt feels like I'm losing control of this. This isn't going the way that I wanted. And so she knows this guy's a prophet, 
but he's just a prophet, right? So let me throw this at him. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. I'm adding the emphasis on the he, 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 as if, you know, it's great that you're saying this, but I want to hear from Messiah. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus does a remarkable thing. He, he said, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You know, he did not, that was not a common thing. Jesus did not walk around going, Messiah, yo, hey, Messiah here. Anybody need a Messiah? I'm the, Mm -hmm. that's actually the kind of thing that the false messiahs would do. They went around Mm -hmm. trumpeting that they were the Messiah. Um, And Jesus, you know, when it would, when it would come out, when he would do something miraculous and they'd be like, you know, you're the, you must be the son of God. He's like, don't tell anybody that yet. Mm -hmm. Just keep it to yourself. Don't tell them until after the resurrection. You know? Um, and yet there were a couple of times when – and I, we looked at some of these uh, recently also when we were talking about um, Isaiah, in Isaiah where it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me and that whole thing at the beginning of the chapter there. And then Jesus read that in Luke 4 at the synagogue and, and he, it, it says that he said to them, today is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing? That was part of our, our message and our podcast a couple of weeks ago. But one of the things we didn't do – was we didn't run that all the way to the ground. We didn't follow that story out. <laughs> what happened after he said that is that it just tore the place apart. They became, it says, enraged, and they take they drove him out of the synagogue, and it says they would have thrown him over a cliff, <laughs> except that Jesus passed through their midst and went away. So he did a— He touched a nerve. Yeah, he did. Um, and you know, and you, and I thought about the, you know that incident of it, and then um, you know the the scene where he's talking to, I guess it was the Pharisees. I'm trying to remember it was the Pharisees. It was the religious leaders, anyways. When he said, "Before Abraham was, I am," mm-hmm. and they were going to stone him for that. It's like the the it's like when he would acknowledge something to a crowd of people. It invariably went bad. <laughs> it's like if he's like, "Yes, I'm the Messiah." When he was being put on that sort of kangaroo court trial in front of the high priest, and the high priest is peppering him with questions, and Jesus is like, I don't, I'm not answering you. But as you pointed out, the high priest said, I abjure you by the, na- by the name of the Most High God. Like he called him out in front of God. Mm-hmm. It's like he invoked the name of the Lord. Tell me, are you the Christ? Jesus said, you said so. I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not all he said. He got, you know, he, but the point is. Coming is that, on the clouds of glory. Yeah. And- they were they were they were not happy with. They that were not answer. happy with that. There was a lot of slapping and spitting that went on after that. Um, so you know, I look at something like this, and I'm like, when Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah to a, an individual, it is so kind and it is so intimate and personal. I, the other time I think about it is with Peter when he says, "Hey, who do men say that I am?" Some say Elijah, some say, and then Peter says. But who do you say? And Peter says, you're this Christ, the son of God. That, and Jesus acknowledges that. And he's like, blessed are you. It's like, it's a, it's a, when it's an individual, it's this really kind moment mm-hmm. where Jesus is giving them a peek behind the curtain to say, yeah, I am the Messiah. Um, doesn't work that same way with the crowd. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things that you see in the way that Jesus evangelizes um, I had this conversation with somebody who is, you know, a bold evangelist, and they came to me feeling really 
conflicted over an encounter that they had with somebody who was struggling with a particular sin. You can probably guess where this where this was going. But he came to me and he says, so I called called out that particular sin and was sharing the gospel with him. And I just I had the real moment where I said, you know, when if you follow Jesus, when, when you go through the gospels, you'll never find Jesus going up and slamming a person, you know, and saying, you're, you're living in sin, you're, you know, you're disgusting or right. know, anything like that. <clears throat> At least not to start. What he will do is he will, he will show that regardless of that person's life, that Jesus sees them with tremendous dignity and that he cares greatly for them and he showers them with love and kindness like you're talking about. And then he'll talk about their sin. You know, the woman caught in adultery, you know, he he gets in front of her, he he defends her, he you know, he calls out the crowd and then when she says, "Oh my goodness, this man has risked his own life to protect me and he's spoken up in my defense." It's then that he says, you know, "Go and and leave your life of sin." Or the the woman at the well, it's after he's talked to her about, you know, wanting to give her living water and coming to her and showing compassion to her, talking to her, um, that he then, you know, starts bringing out where where she's struggling, where her life is, is on this destructive path. But that's always the way that Jesus does it. So, like, you know, if, if I go out and I say, hey, you know, I remember the campus preachers. So when I was at University of Florida, there were these people who would <laughs> hang out in the, the courtyards and the fields, and they would tell everybody they're going to a hell for a million different reasons. Did they have that a sandwich so- board on that said the end is coming? No, they but they were dressed in all black. Okay, I just remember, and they would, you know, I just remember you'd walk through the courtyard, and they would be out there, you know, you're going to hell, and then they would list all of these reasons why everybody on campus was going to hell, and that ranged from sexual sin to drunkenness, and yeah, I mean, you named it. They had their they had their whole list of sins why why people were going to hell, and I mean, thousands of people came to faith, Mark, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, never. never. Nobody ever came to faith with them. I mean, they got mocked and ridiculed and people hurled insults at them and got really, really angry at them. But God and Jesus did not – were never beautiful in that. Yeah. Um, and so like that, the character of Jesus is always to, sh- to show people that they are valuable and that they're loved and that you know, no matter what sins they may have, no matter what past they may have – it's not going to scare him away because his love is relentless and his grace is overwhelming anything that you could have ever done. Right. And that's where as a church we need to start with people. Yeah. You know, there's there's nothing you could tell me that's going to shock me out of extending grace and love to you. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know, then when the disciples kind of, you know, heave back onto the scene here in verse 27 because it says it says earlier that they had gone into town to uh, get some food. Mm-hmm. So they come back, and it says, at this point, his disciples came, verse 27, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. That goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier, just that that an, a single – that a man, just an individual man would be speaking to an individual woman and mm-hmm. having an actual conversation with her was hugely unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in particular, the Samaritan woman, but he, they're not even going to get into that here yet. Uh, it says, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? When I read that verse, I thought <laughs> I love to, that. Yeah. When I read that verse, I thought to myself, 
and because you and I have talked about this, you know, during the time that Jesus was with his disciples and 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 he was discipling them, you know, during those during those three years or so of his public ministry, um, we've talked about the fact of did these guys really even understand the gospel? Did they really, you know, were they actual? Believers were they saved at that point, or it seems as almost as though, in many ways, it was it took the the crucifixion and the resurrection to bring mm-hmm. some of these guys around to that to that ultimate decision, and and so I kind of imagine that at this point in their relationship, these guys were still not exactly sure who this Jesus guy was, but the one thing they did know about Jesus is. He's not going to play this let's choose sides game. <laughs> no. Yeah. And every time anybody ever came up to him, and I mean you can you can walk through the examples of of the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and they all they all come to him with questions where they're trying to pin him down and everybody every time somebody tries to pin him down on a particular side, they always walk away looking like an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he his comeback is just so uh, tremendously wise and that it just it, he doesn't do it to be cruel, but they walk away going, "Oh!" And it says the crowds marveled, and but the person who asked the question is, you know, quickly shown wisdom. And here they're like, "I'm not going to ask. <laughs> you want to ask? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not asking." Uh, well, and also the fact that you know Jesus was violating certain social norms at the time by talking to this woman and by talking to a Samaritan woman and not just any Samaritan woman, but talking to a Samaritan woman who had come at high noon to draw water and everybody knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She was an outcast among the outcasts. Yes. Among. Yeah. So she was, she was among a people who were already dismissed. She was dismissed by the people who were dismissed. She's far flung outcast. Yeah. And he's like, that's why I love when it says he must go into Samaria, when it says that in verse 4. Like, you just get the sense that there is something in him that is compelling him to walk, you know, however far that would have been, 50 miles or whatever, Yeah. to find this one woman at midday at a well. And he sends his disciples away, go get us some food, just so he can set up this one moment with this one person, which is just cool. Yeah. You know, to think that that God, by the way, seeks those kinds of moments with you mm-hmm. um, and me, if if we'll avail ourselves and and not try to try to talk <laughs> about the weather, you know, and listen to to what He's asking us and what He's calling us to do, we can have those powerful moments. Yeah. Well, and I also think that um, you know that's the purpose of these stories and these vignettes that we get to see from the life of Jesus is that we begin to see what God's heart is like toward us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we read this story and we talk about all these details, but the big picture is that Jesus was willing to violate social norms. He was mm-hmm. willing to shrug off potential criticism to go to this person who desperately needed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, you and I have talked about this before. You said the only thing we contribute to our own salvation is the need for a Savior. <laughs> it's like yeah. – and the I'm sin like, that makes it necessary. Yeah. I'm quoting somebody. I don't know who. Well, and that is – you know, that's very true is that, um, you know, and yet we are the people 
the bigger sinner you are, the greater friend Jesus is to you. And that's a such a weird – I quoted in personal worship for related verses. I went around – and they're not hard to find, by the way. They're not hard to find. I went and pulled some other verses where people were mocking him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, you know. And he talks about – he says, you know, John didn't eat or drink and talking about alcohol and stuff. And you say he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. And you say he's a glutton. You know, it's like <laughs> um, there's a movement a while. It's kind of faded now. But you remember the WWJD, what would Jesus yeah. do? That was a sure. big thing for a while. They had bracelets made. Anytime, guys, you have bracelets made, you know it's a big deal. So <laughs> that was like a big thing in the Christian. I never actually owned one. But I and I didn't I didn't like hate the question i think that it's a good question we we want to know what jesus would do but to me the the answer to the question was always the same thing jesus wouldn't wear a bracelet that made him look weird like, <laughs> i just imagine meeting him in the flesh back then he would have been the most real normal present grounded it just you'd be so drawn to him not because of how he looked but because of how he reacted to you. It's like mm-hmm. how he welcomed you, what what his words were toward you. That was the thing that would be – there was no big sign over his head that said Messiah here with an arrow pointing down. There was nothing that would draw us to him appearance-wise. But what drew people to him was how he treated them, how he cared mm-hmm. for them, what he said to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the nature of our God. I remember somebody – and reformed circles, of course, because it had to be somebody reformed to do something like this. But in response to the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? They had WHJD. What has Jesus done? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, because it's not like Jesus doesn't just give a moral example and say, "Okay, now be like me," right? You know? <laughs> right? Because we'd all be very screwed. Like that would be really, really hard to to. We couldn't measure up to it. Yeah. And so, like, even even the reality is, like, in this story, this woman is not like Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, you could live like me. Look at me and be like me." Right? Like, that's not what thrills her heart. That's not what ultimately is going to change her. It's it's the kindness and grace that she is shown, mm-hmm. despite the fact that she can't measure up to who he is. That yeah. changes this woman. It's the freedom of knowing he loves me anyway. Now I want to give my life to him. It's not duty or slavery. Um, yeah. It's, it's fascinating dynamics how this story plays out because what we want to do is make this story all about – and Jesus came to her and said, stop being like that and start being more like me. And you never find that. Nope. No, you never do. And for those that, you know, and we talk about this woman being transformed versus the last two verses here, 28 and 29, I think are so impactful when you think about them. Just for a couple of points here. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men of that city, come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The two things that struck me when I read those verses in the passage this week, number one, she left her water pot. She -hmm. had come to the well because she needed water. And what she found at the well, there's a water from which she would never be thirsty again. It's like, you know, we talk about, did she really understand what he was talking about when he said, I'm going to give you living water and you'll never be thirsty again? And she's like, yes, she understood that because that, (laughs) because that, that 
old water, that, you know, junky, just normal water, she just left that behind. That water mm-hmm. pot was like totally off her radar at that point. And the second thing that struck me, Sam, is that this woman was an outcast among the outcasts. It's like she had been rejected by at least five men and, and the current guy she was with wouldn't bother to marry her. It's like she was being treated so poorly mm-hmm. by these people that she had become a pariah that had to go to the well at noon and high noon to get the water during the hottest part of the day. And yet, Sam, the first thing she did when she realized she had found the Messiah is she went back to these people and mm-hmm. said, could this be the Christ? I'm mm-hmm. thinking, if you dumped on me my whole life to the point that I was embarrassed to be around you and I found the Messiah, I'd be going, I'd, I'd look for anybody else to tell about. I'd be happy to tell people about, but not you. I'm not mm-hmm. coming back to you. And in that moment, man, she just, what an act of grace on her part to go back to that town and say to them, could this be the Christ? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that she goes to the well at midday, you know, it's counterintuitive, shows you that she really cares what these people say. You know, otherwise she would just endure the insults and say, I know what, I don't, I don't care what my townspeople say. I'll listen to them, but I'm not going at the hottest part of the day. The fact that she goes at the hottest part of the day when no one else is there, it's counterintuitive, says that she really does care what they say, that this has been really painful for her to endure, right? Yeah. So these people's opinions hold power over her, and in a moment, in this one encounter, when Jesus says, I see it all and you're mine, I'm seeking exactly someone like you. You are going to be the one who worships in spirit and truth. Forget about the mountains. You're mine. And now all of a sudden, all of those shameful pasts that she's been hiding that have that have owned her and enslaved her and imprisoned her and made her you know, change her schedule because she felt so worthless, now they're like trophies and of grace. She goes back into the town and all the things that she'd been hiding now are like – she's like, he saved me from all this. He told me all the things I ever did and he still loves me. And he, now all of a sudden, she because she has the approval and validation and worth coming from the only opinion in the universe that matters ultimately, she's freed up to be enslaved by fear of their opinions. Right. And that's one of the most powerful things of the gospel because you got to think, you know, they've been watching her avoid them for years. Yeah. And now all of a sudden some power has come into her where she's like parading through the streets. He knows I had five husbands. Oh my goodness, he knows that I'm living with a guy who's not my husband now. He told me all of it and he still loved me and everyone's going, "Wait, what? <laughs> why why is she doing this?" Yeah. Because she's free. She's free from the shame. She's free from the guilt. And now they're like, something's going on. Like, we got to go check this stuff out. And so I love that she leaves her water part. She's satisfied. And it's because she's satisfied in Christ that she's no longer seeking satisfaction in the arms of men or in the approval of her townspeople. She has real liberty, which is what we all want. And Jesus offers it if we just believe his estimation of us. Well, and that's where the passage ends for this week's message. But I, you know me, I, I can't, I'm like, I cannot stop there. I can't like let it end with the, it's hanging out there. Well, what happened? I want you folks to know what happened. So verse 30, 
says, Then they, talking about the men of the city, went out of the city and came to him. And I'm going to jump down to verse 39 through 42, which is the wrap-up of this. It says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's the end. That's that's the the punchline of the story, or the end of the story. That's the moral of the story, which is, you know, she risked everything again to go back to these, you know, all the ridicule that was driving her from them. She was risking double scorn. It's like, oh, great, you, you know, you're you're the you're the noonday water jug lady. We know you, and you're going to come tell us about what a Messiah, and yet that's not what happened. I think that it's also it's probably worth commenting on that uh, that he stayed with the Samaritans. That's another thing that a Jewish person would not do. The disciples had to be like, "Oh, great, <laughs> we're going to stay in Samaria for a couple of days." <sighs> you know, one of the one of the things in this that I really do appreciate is is you have, like you pointed out, the woman came there for water. But she found living water, and so she leaves her water part. And, and, and we read this story through the eyes of a woman who's exhilarated and the fact that she's found salvation. And I think that's right. the right way to read it. Yeah. But one of the things that I really love is before this story began, you know, the disciples had gone away to go get food, right? Mm-hmm. And so they come back, and in verse 31, it says, in the meantime, as disciples came back, they've got all this food. They're like, why is he talking to her? (laughs) I imagine them saying it sing-song, by the way, just like that. What is Jesus doing? (laughs) And they say, Rabbi, eat. And he has the same reaction she did. He says, I have food to eat, which you don't know. In other words, she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm filled. I don't need the water pot. Water pot. I'm going back to the town to tell everybody about this. And then the disciples come with food, and they're like, hey, Jesus, here's food. And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm full. Yeah. And it's like both of them in that moment. The, the woman walks away way satisfied, and then Christ here is just totally satisfied. Like he's, he's full. And so like you talk about how can you – you know, please the Lord. You know, she didn't do anything super righteous or anything. She didn't, you know, all of a sudden start a Bible study or community group. She just grabbed hold of him. She recognized how sweet he was, gave her life to him, grabbed hold of the grace that he was offering. And Jesus in return, she's satisfied and leaves the water pot. Jesus in return, when he's offered food, says, no, 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 I'm full. I'm satisfied. That just filled my tank. Yeah. You know, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that, uh, you know, there are people that tell me all the time, oh, you know, the the New Testament, they wrote it to make themselves look good. The guys that put it together just wanted to have power. I'm like, they really, if they wanted to have power, they did a crappy job of it because most of them ended up, like, dead in a particularly unpleasant way. Mm -hmm. Um, And on top of that, you have verse 33 where it says, after Jesus said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 33 says, therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like that. But but you see something that moment of of honesty there. I I just know that the Holy Spirit put that there 
in the record so that you and I, Sam, would go, oh, okay, so we don't have to feel so bad when we ask dumb questions <laughs> like that. I mean, one of the maybe – maybe this is a good thing to, to kind of wrap up on this thought, but to say that one of the ways that you can know that you are doing the will of God, that you're doing God's work is, is it something that you find satisfying? Are you really satisfied in it? Because if you're not, if you feel like I'm, you know, this is leaving me completely empty, it's probably not doing the will of God. It's probably not what God wants you to do. Uh, I commented on that uh, yesterday because yesterday was my birthday, which the church embarrassed me. Thank you very much. They put it on the Facebook page and sent a big <laughs> email out and uh, and I, you know what? I appreciate all the kind words from everybody. It really was nice. I really appreciated the kind words. Everybody that wrote something, thank you for taking the time to write a note to me. That was great. I, I really, seriously, genuinely uh, appreciated it. But I was a little uncomfortable with it, as you can imagine. I was kind of like, yeah, okay, great, you know. Um, but but the the thing about that is it it gave me a chance to kind of look back over uh, the time that I've been at the church, you know, because I turned sixty one yesterday. And when I came to our church for the first time, I was 25. And, you know, I was already an adult. I was married. uh, But I was young. I was a young adult. And in that time from age 25 to age 61, we had children who were born into our church community, baptized here, schooled here. They went through Bethany. Um, They're now grown and out of the house. One's married and one will be married uh, next month, December. Um, you know, this, and I've been here, I've been an employee now, the director of communications for a number of years. I've been an elder. I'll be an elder 30 years next January. It was 1992 to 2022. And so you look at all of that and I, I just began to reflect on the fact that I, I feel so privileged. Like I've, I've not wasted a minute of my time. Nothing about my life has been wasted. It's been here in this one place. And and what a grace that is, Sam, to not have to move around and chase jobs and move all over the country. I really feel for people that are being yanked around like that. I feel like they can't stay in one place. God has been gracious to my wife and I and given us the chance to stay in this place and serve this one church for our entire adult lives, basically. And to and to look back at that and feel this enormous sense of satisfaction that God has given me that gift to be able to do that. And so I do. I find myself wondering, you know, if you were to ask me, how do you know this is where God wanted you? Like, I've been here more than 30 years, 36 years, and I absolutely feel satisfied. I don't feel like I should have been anywhere else. Hmm. I don't feel like I've missed a thing. You know? Anyway. Yeah. You know, you you talk about the will of God and feeling satisfied. You know, between – between the the woman leaving her jar and going back into town and then you know jumping down to verse 39 where it talks about how many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him, Jesus goes into a little sermonette and it's where he talks about like, look out there, the fields are white for harvest, they're ready to be gathered. And you know he makes it a point like we should be about gathering as many people to the kingdom of heaven as we can. And he says, he who reaps, receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Both he that sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Those who disciple and evangelize, they're rejoicing together because your labors in this world are not just for this world. They have eternal consequences. And so there's you're, you're, you're reaping 
for eternity. And when you're doing that, there's a satisfaction. We were talking about this before we started, but without faith, this world would just feel very empty because you're guaranteed that the grave comes and snatches it all. Yeah. But there's one way, you know, you talk about being in a church, doing ministry, and in all the different ways that you've done it, you know, and doing it faithfully and doing it well and leading personal worship and podcasting and all these different things that that you've participated in and, and more, worship team way back in the day. Yep. You know, all of that is is sowing and reaping for eternity, and there is something to be greatly satisfying about that. Mm-hmm. That's where this passage points sow and reap for eternity. And he tells them at the end, he tells the disciples at the end, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. You know, that's the, when, before we turned the mics on, you and I were talking about that sense of the world would make no sense to us if there was no, if if we did not have our faith and our, and our purpose, you know, it, if I looked at if if I looked at what I have done, I you know I made that great speech, and we'll see if I live, leave it in or not. It sounded a little self sounded like I was doing a humble brag, and I wasn't. Um, so I, I may I may leave it in. I may take it out. I don't know if if it's in there, folks. You're welcome, and if not, then you won't hear this part either. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, if if I were to go back and look at that and say, okay, well, so you feel satisfied having done all these things? Tell me of their results. I don't know that I could give you a whole huge list of results, Sam. I don't know. I mean, I could, I, but every so often there's something, there was just something recently that we were talking about before this got started. Somebody that contacted me and there was something in that, that I, I realized that I'd had a, a, an effect on this person from years ago, just doing what I do at the church, like no big deal. You know, I was just doing my thing and, Think and and really probably not thinking anything was unusual about it or anything was special about it, and yet it, it had an impact in this person's life. And so, you know, there's another message to you all who are listening to this, who are thinking, it is just really hard to keep at it and be faithful. And I just not I'm not seeing anything. I'm not I'm not getting anything back. I'm not seeing the results of it. Well, Jesus is saying here that you know what. We're all the, – the results, it's like he's the one that gets to see the results of everything. It's like we're all part of a team doing our part. And whatever my small part is, if I've done it faithfully and I've been satisfied with it, it gives enough meaning and purpose to my life that I'm not going to go play in traffic. Because otherwise, I'm telling you, if it was like you're just here for 70 or 80 meaningless years and then you're worm food, <laughs> I'd be like, why wait? Why wait for it? Why wait? No. Why why drag this out? If all I'm going to do is waste my time for 80 years and then I'm worm food, but I don't believe that. And I don't believe I'm anything great. I believe I'm one living stone, one part of the wall. You know, I'm not even the shiny stone. I'm the black mortar that the shiny stone gets embedded in <laughs> on the wall. But the point is I'm doing what God has called me to do. And it's not anything particularly amazing, and I don't necessarily get to the accolades or the, the feeling of satisfaction other than from the doing of it. I get satisfaction from the doing of it because I know that if I put it in his hands, he will multiply it. He will make it great. He will do something much more with it than I could ever do in my own strength and because of my own winsomeness. Sorry, I'm <laughs> preaching again. I get preaching. I get, it just happens. I just – I don't <laughs> 
you know. Yeah, I get it, man. And I'll tell you, I you you look back and you think, you know, somebody had an inconsequential conversation with Billy Graham where they walked away thinking, well, that was pointless. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was not a believer and I was working with AG Edwards and I was a financial broker and I got assigned because I think this is part of the hazing process when you're young working in a finance. So they sent me to work a kiosk in the mall, which is like the sixth circle of hell for <laughs> for a financial advisor. A but kiosk anyways, in the mall for financial advice. Is there a weirder kiosk to have in a mall than that one? I don't know. And, and I think they know that it's going to be totally fruitless, but they're doing it to humble you and make you hungry or something. I don't. I don't get the logic behind it, but I hated every moment of it. But I remember a guy coming up to me and talking to me at the kiosk, and it's like, you're just a target for evangelists. It's like, hmm, <laughs> you're captive there. You can't leave. And so this guy came up and started talking to me about the gospel. And I still remember that conversation, and it didn't go well for that guy. And I was obnoxious, and I dismissed him, and I was probably rude with my responses. But there were like two or three things that he said to me during that conversation that when I went home, gnawed at me. Hmm. And I couldn't shake him. And I couldn't get rid of them. And then sure enough, probably, I don't know, six months later, when I hit a crisis point in life, someone else came and reaped. You know, They mm-hmm. came along and they explained the gospel to me. But it makes me wonder if I had not had that uncomfortable conversation – and there were like three or four of these conversations that happened in this course of six months, but that was the first one. If those questions didn't sit and gnaw on my soul – would I have been open? Would I have sought? Would I, you know, like God uses all of it. So the faithfulness of whatever person that was that came and pestered me in the mall, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. God used it. He used their faithfulness. I couldn't tell you who they were, what denomination they were. I had no idea. Um, I think it would be genuinely hilarious, Sam, if somehow that one person in the mall was listening to this podcast <laughs> and said, yeah. financial kiosk in a mall, a guy that was rude to me, I remember you. And, is, and Vero Beach. Yeah. If it, you're out there, I would like to know. Sam at com. <laughs> Just send him an email and say, hey, it was me. Of course, now you're probably going to get a bunch of emails from people that <laughs> – it was me, okay. Sam. I, I take credit for it all. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good it, – it, it, I mean, it's a good point. And I tell you something – you know, I feel like that's kind of the message of this passage about the Samaritan woman, which is it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Is that if what you're doing is you are taking you are taking that living water that is in you and you are offering it to others, God will take it. God will use it. You're part of his plan. You're part of his kingdom. Don't be discouraged. Just don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Yeah. Would have been easy Amen. for this woman to give up, but she Amen. didn't. So. Well, that's a good word. And since the clock on the wall says we've been talking for 77 minutes and 21 seconds about 10 verses from John chapter 4, we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks. Uh, we're going to let it stand at that. Um, we've enjoyed this conversation, uh, the first week of the Awaken series, Live Like It Matters. We've got uh, two more weeks of this to do, so we hope that you'll be along for the ride. Um, if you are able to join us at church on Sunday morning at Rio Vista Community Church, you can find out information on times and locations and so forth, and come down and be part of our church family on Sunday morning. You can find all that at our website, Rio Vista Church. 
Church.com. That's R-I-O, VistaChurch.com. We are in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So if you're listening to us and you're in the greater Broward County, Fort Lauderdale area, uh, it's the it's not too bad of a drive. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, if you're that guy that met Sam in the mall that day, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. We would love to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like to make, maybe something you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast. Um, you can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. Uh, Sam and I will be back next week with another in the series Awaken, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.